If I use my vacation time to go on a missions trip and I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I pray every day and trust God completely, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I volunteer at the homeless shelter, but have not love, I am nothing. If I'm the life of the party, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I quit my job and become a full-time missionary, but don't have love, I am nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes. Always perseveres. Love never fails. Sorry, that was my fault. Good morning. Now the mic's on. My name's Luke, one of the pastors here, usually over at our Edgewood campus. Hello to everyone gathered over there, and uh, to those at the Bellar campus as well at John Carroll School. We're, uh, if you're just joining us, we're still um, trying to figure out what does love have to do with it. We're in the final week of this series, and we're hoping to have better luck than Tina Turner in answering that question in her song from which we got this name uh, for the series. You might remember, of course, in week one, Ethan Magnus and his stellar lip sync to that song. I mean, it's that Ethan and his crazy ideas, you know. But uh, he'll tell you, and I can too, that, uh, that lip syncing a song is easier than actually singing a song. You know, dancing along and pretending to sing it is a lot easier than, than really singing it. And in a similar way, in our relationships, uh, going through the motions of love is easier than doing the hard work of actually loving someone, right? Uh, I can give lip service to love. Uh, I can maybe move my mouth along with those verses as they're read at weddings, right? I've heard them so many times, and uh, I can do that with my lips, but it's a lot easier, or excuse me, a lot harder to show love to somebody and act it out in our lives. Uh, We can memorize verses from the Bible about love, but what does that have to do with anything if I can't do love, if I can't show love to other people, if I don't have anything more than words, right? Uh, There's, oh yeah, more than words, right? Yeah, I mean, that song had to be played right there, right? Extreme more than words. But seriously, love is more than words. You've got to do more than that to make it real. And what we're trying to figure out in this series, or to just imagine, is what we would be like, what our relationships would be like, what our families would be like, our neighborhoods would be like, if that love played out in those relationships, if love truly was real. And so we listen again to those poetic words from 1 Corinthians. A church leader named Paul is writing them to the church at Corinth, and he begins this more well-known section of his letter after rehearsing for his listeners a number of different ways that they're missing the point in the ways that they're relating to one another. They're, They're just not getting it. And so he says to them at the end of chapter 12, and now I will show you the most excellent way, which we need, right? We, we need a more excellent way, a way that's better than, than what we're used to. And those people did too. 
because we all have a way of relating to one another. All of us have to choose a way that we're going to get on with our fellow man and, and fellow woman, and, and there's lots of different ways that, that we try to do that. Whether we seek to mainly dominate or to manipulate or to control other people. Others of us uh, go the way of impressing others or always pleasing others or doing everything we can to prove ourselves to other people. Some of us go the way of self-preservation. Whatever happens in a relationship, we have to make sure that, that, that our ego stays intact, our reputation is upheld, our pride is vindicated. Pride and status and upper hand and image and, and convenience, sometimes we convince ourselves that those things have everything to do with it in a relationship. Can I, can I tell you the worst advice I ever received? Uh, we'd been married uh, just six months, and we are getting ready to go home to visit our families for our first Christmas as a married couple. And I was talking to, um, you know, I'll call him a friend about this. He'd been married for a few years, and I was expressing to him how I was a little bit nervous about how this visit was going to go. Uh, we had a lot of people to see. We're 16 hours away from home, and we're coming back for the first time, first big holiday. And I'm already starting to feel like her family's planning a little too much for when we're going to be home. They're, they're, they're claiming too much of my time for, for when we're going to be on this visit, right? That's how I'm feeling. And I'm complaining about this to my friend. And, and so he says to me, oh, you've got to set the tone, man. I mean, this Christmas is going to influence how you spend all the other rest of your Christmases. And, and, and if you don't set the tone and say this is how it's going to be, well, then you'll never get to see the people that you want to see for any Christmas for the rest of your life. So, I mean, boundaries with family are good. And they need to be lovingly and understandingly established and upheld. But that's not what was being advised. And that's not what I was aiming for. Instead, we went home on that trip, and I chose the way of, of self-preservation, of self-interest, making sure that whatever happened during that visit, nobody was going to intrude on what I felt I needed to do. I needed to assert myself in this relationship, which wasn't just a one-to-one -one thing, but now this far more complicated web of relationships with all the extended family, and I determined that what was most important for me to do was to let them know that for the next however many years we're going to be spending holidays together, I will not be acquiescing to their demands on how I spend my time. And you know why I did that? Because I'm an idiot. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't that funny. Uh... The result was not a very Merry Christmas. I need a better way to relate to the people I say I love. And Paul says, let me show you the most excellent way. It's love. Love, which is not an emotion or a notion or found in a potion. It's an action. Love does. It does. The kinds of things that we've been talking about the last few weeks, it, it, it shows patience over and over again. It offers kindness. It forgives. It does not boast. It does not seek its own way. And it's this final flourish uh, from these famous verses that warrants our attention today. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Here, love is described in some extreme terms. There are things that it always does and things that it never does. It's interesting, when, you, when you're learning uh, the skills of fighting fair in a relationship, one of the things that you're taught is to avoid using phrases that include words like always and never. Right? You always do that. 
You never do anything nice for me. You're always late. I know you're looking around like wondering, who are these people that say these kinds of things? I mean, who could that? I, I know you would never say that, but I mean, I've heard that, that sometimes those things are said. Or we're told not to because, I mean, it doesn't help. It just inflames the conversation. I mean, technically, those things aren't true. Those extreme generalizations, I mean, they overstate the case. He doesn't always leave his underwear on the floor. It's not that she never cooks dinner. It's not that your friend never returns your text messages. Those things, they, they distort the truth and they distort your relationship. But when it comes to love, the kind of love that comes from God always and never are, are precisely the words that you need. They do not distort what love is. In fact, to say anything else would be to grossly understate the case. Love always endures. Always. It is always there. Every time. Protecting, trusting, hoping, persevering. And love never fails. And, and we can hardly even think of anything else like that. Something so enduring, so constant what else is there that never fails i mean aside from the fact that it rains the day after i wash my car i mean that never fails or, or aside from the fact that we get the whole family in the van and all buckled in and then that's when the kids have to go potty i mean that never fails but aside from those things what what else is there that never fails what else lasts what else always comes through i don't Ethan described in week one just how uh, confrontational these words are. They hit us, and, and we realize we, we don't measure up. We fail. We give up. We divorce. We, we quit. We foreclose. We flunk. We fold. We break our promises. We... We disappoint the people that we love. We say we love them, but then when we look at this description of what love is, what, what love does, we realize we, we don't do those things. All of us know what this is, right? What is it? It's a rope. And what is this? The end of a rope. Right? <laughs> and all of us can probably think of times uh, when we've been at the end of our rope. We, we use that phrase, a common expression, when we're, you know, we're just, we're done. We're, we're out of ideas, we're hopeless, we've tried everything and nothing's worked. We have no more energy, no more patience, no more options, it's over. We're, we're at the end of our rope. We've probably felt that way before about something or, or about someone. Or, or we've gotten close to that point. We maybe have said something, I'm nearing the end of my rope here. A lot of us have arrived at the end of our rope with people whom at one point we said that we loved. Or we even still love. With kids who, who've trampled the boundaries time and time again and caused so much pain and just persisted in their rebellion. You've reached the end of your rope. With parents who've hurt you too many times. Or parents who are too stubborn to change. You've reached the end of your rope. With a spouse who, who's promised to change but then just keeps doing the same stuff over and over again. You've reached the end of your rope with people who, who are so blind that they just can't see what everyone else can see about the effect of their behavior. They won't act on what everyone else knows they need to do. And, and you just, you're at the end of your rope. So what do you do when you get here? Is there only option to just let go? 
I'm sure that all of us can tell stories of relationships that we once held on to, but have since let go. There are people who have given up on us, and we've given up on other people. Whether that's meant we've shunned a friend, or divorced a spouse, or excommunicated a family member, or left a church, or kissed God goodbye because, well, we were just at the end of our rope. And to a collection of people for whom all of that is true, Paul says, let me show you the most excellent way. For when you are at the end of your rope, and I know you will be there at some point with someone, when you're at the end of your rope, you need to see what love does. For, for love, the kind of love that I'm talking about, the kind of love that comes from and even defines God himself, that kind of love never comes to the end of its rope. And there should be no end to the number of times you remember that. That's what Paul is desiring for his readers. That's what the Bible is trying to say to anyone who would listen to its words. It's fascinating for me as I studied the Scriptures this week, trying to mine out other sections of the Bible that would give a fuller understanding of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13. Turns out there's a whole bunch more in the Bible that is sounding the same notes as what Paul is trumpeting in this famous chapter. First place I turned was to Psalm 136. Uh, the Psalms are songs. Okay? They, they, 150 of them in our Bibles, they comprise the playlist for God's people. Before songs could be assembled on iTunes, they were cataloged here in what we know as the Psalms. And Psalm 136 is a, a praise song, a, a thanksgiving song, trying to express in lyrics and a melody something true about God. And it goes like this. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever give thanks to the god of gods his love endures forever give thanks to the lord of lords his love endures forever to him who alone does great wonders his love endures forever who by his understanding made the heavens his love endures forever who spread out the earth upon the waters his love endures forever and you thought we repeated ourselves a lot in our song but that's just the beginning. On and on it keeps going for all 26 verses of the psalm. With every line that is recited, there is the intrusion of this idea that cannot be escaped. The love of God endures forever. There is no end to it. It never comes to the end of its rope. In fact, this same phrase threads its way all throughout the Scriptures, reminding, of us, reminding us of this enduring truth in all kinds of different situations. Psalm 107 begins the same way. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And then it goes on to tell the stories of four different groups of people. Some were wanderers. They were lost, couldn't find their place in life. Others were prisoners. They sat in darkness. Others were fools, rebellious and careless. Still others were cowards, unable to face life's challenges. And while all of their stories begin in a different place, eventually they all arrive at the same place to the end of their rope, to, to the place where we've all been. They are at wit's end with no one to help. Their lives are ebbing away, the Bible describes. And all of them, when they arrive there, the psalm says, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. So let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love. For when you are at the end of your rope, God's love endures. 
Psalm 106 begins the same way as 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. But it is not a shout of happy praise. It is a confession. A bald, honest, painful recounting of sin. For 33 verses, the list is long. Nathan talked last week about the lists of sins that we keep. I suspect that many of us would have a hard time being as honest about our own list as Psalm 106. All the gory details of how God's people have been unfaithful in their relationship with God are laid bare. They were jealous. They were idolatrous. Idolatrous. They didn't trust. They forgot God. They despised what God freely gave them. They followed other gods. They disobeyed. They sacrificed their sons and daughters, killed innocent people, and defiled themselves in every way. And you thought your list was ugly. As a result, the Bible says they were repeatedly defeated by their enemies. And then it tells how many times God delivered them, but they were bent on rebellion. They wasted away in their sin. They were at the end of their rope. Not once, not twice, but many times. Time and time again. And then the Bible lays down one of its most beautiful words. Nevertheless. Nevertheless, God heard their cry. For their sake He remembered His covenant and He showed compassion according to the abundance of His steadfast love. His love never comes to the end of its rope. We need to know that when we come to the end of ours. When our sin list is too long and too ugly for us to bear. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for He has been good to us. His steadfast love for me endures forever. We need to know that chorus. We need to hear it replayed over and over again like a One Direction song on the radio. We need to hear it when we're afraid. When, when we fear what the future holds, when, when we don't know if we can make it through what lies ahead, when we're nearing the end of our rope. Some of us might be there today. God's people and their king found themselves in that place in Second Chronicles in chapter 20. The king was informed of vast armies assembling against you. A number of your different enemies are all teaming up together and they are preparing to take you on and they're closing in on you as we speak. The king was afraid as any of us would be when we sense that our grip on life is slipping, when we feel that we're being threatened. And wisely from that place, the Bible says the king resolved himself to seek the Lord. And so did all the people. Where else would you go when you're nearing the end of your rope? In response to, to their seeking, the story continues to tell that the Spirit of the Lord descends and reassures them, saying, Don't be afraid, for the battle is not yours, but God's. So you go face your enemies. You walk into the future, however threatening or frightening it appears to be, and watch the Lord fight for you. See the victory that He will claim on your behalf. Don't be afraid, for the Lord is with you. And maybe some of us need to hear that today as we think about the battles in front of us. We need to hear that so that we can respond in the same way that God's people responded, for they did not run away. No, they marched toward the battle. And the king appointed people to walk out front of them and lead them and to sing praises to God. And what did they sing as they walked along? That same old chorus that just keeps being repeated, give thanks to the Lord for His love endures forever. We need to know that when we're outmatched. 
when we know that, that what lies ahead of us is too much for us, when we don't have the strength to take on what stands against us, when we know that the future is going to bring us to the end of our rope, we hold on to the truth that God's love endures forever. It never fails. That same chorus is played out over and over again in the Bible, and it needs to play over and over again in our lives. It needs to, so that the kind of love that comes from God can be real in our lives, in our relationships. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. If we can know that, and we can trust that, and we can remember that God's unfailing love, which has endured throughout all generations, is now come to us in spite of our failures and our sin and our ugliness and our fear. God's love endures for us. If we can see the picture that the Bible paints of that kind of love and understand that that always enduring, never failing love has come to us, then it might have a chance to flow through us into our relationships. When we come to the end of our rope, we might learn to hold on to love. How do we do that? I want to speak a little more practically for just a moment. Um, I'm going to steal something from my dad, actually. Uh, my dad's a preacher. He's taught me a lot about a lot. Uh, i got a great dad. I have great in-laws too, by the way. I should mention that. Uh, didn't, didn't mean to disparage them in the story I told earlier, trying to communicate that that was my issue and not theirs, just to be clear. But anyway, my dad, there's, uh, there's something I've heard him teach a number of times before, and it's, uh, it's been very helpful for me. I trust that it'll be helpful for us as well. I think, uh, I think we all want love, right? Fair to say that? And uh, we're talking today about lasting love. Uh, and when we think about love that lasts, we commonly think of marriage as the arena where that kind of love is supposed to play out. And I know not all of us are married, uh, but many of us who aren't, uh, we will be one day. Or maybe uh, we're not now, but we will be again at some point. And even if not, uh, the kind of thing that we're talking about here really applies to all relationships or any endeavor where the goal is uh, an enduring commitment. There's no theory about marriage which um, says that every relationship will go through five stages on the way to mature love. Okay? And, and if you put it on a graph where the, uh, the vertical axis measured happiness and the horizontal axis, measure, or horizontal axis measured the movement of time, every relationship will move through five stages. Okay? It'll begin somewhere up on the happiness scale and it you know it'll go up a little bit from there and this stage is actually called illusion okay uh we know what an illusion is an illusion is what a, ma a magician performs right you see something and but what actually exists is something else uh, no surprise that we might bring some illusions into our relationships right one might be that you know we're beginning at this happy place and everything from this point forward is just going to move up and up until we reach this uh, stage of startling bliss right such thinking might be an illusion uh, or another one might be that um, i know at this point i i really love my partner but in the early learnings of love what i really mean is i love so many things about them and in the back of my mind, I'm convinced that even the things I don't love, I intend to change, right? 
um, I think with enough hard work and, and energy, I can probably change that person. Such thinking might be an illusion. Um, so these, these things don't surprise us. And it doesn't surprise us either to think that, you know, the happiness level, it'll eventually decline a little bit. As the, the reality of uh, being with and living with this person begins to settle in, some of our expectations are challenged. Boy, I didn't think it would be like this. He's a little messier than I thought. Uh, his mother's a little more intrusive than I would have guessed. We're poorer than I had hoped. Well, turns out, you know, she's actually kind of lazy. I don't know. What you find here is a couple who desires, well, they desire to have a deep and meaningful relationship, and they may have meaningful relationships with other friends, but, but they're not really sure how to find that in each other. Their connection is strained. And so he gravitates towards those with whom he doesn't have to work as hard. And she withdraws to be with people who understand her better. The relationship begins to be burdened by stalemate. Stalemate is when issues continue to arise but never resolve. Haven't we talked about this before? I've already described to you that I don't want this. Why is this still happening when, when I've told you I didn't want to do this anymore? So this couple is in the phase struggling with, well, disillusionment. And eventually, uh, they will reach the point of pain. And the thinking begins to change from, I didn't think it was supposed to be like this, to, I know it's not supposed to be like this. Stalemate increases. Every argument begins at the intensity level of the previous argument. A lot is said, but little is heard. And as the, the happiness line continues to plummet substantially, I mean, it'll eventually come to the end of its rope. And at this point, the marriage will either drop out the bottom and end in divorce, or it'll just descend to the lowest levels of happiness and exist, miserable. Or there's a third option. And by the way, pain is always a necessary component of maturity. The third option sees the happiness line climb just a little bit. And it's called... Awakening. Awakening. This is the period where I stop asking the question, how can I change this miserable person into who I need them to be? And start asking, how am I going to have to change in order to make this work? And it's such a critical time in a relationship. This is the critical corner of maturity. The growth moment. It's where you begin to see your conceptions of love as a self-serving, emotion-driven means to an end of getting where you want to be in life. You begin to see all those conceptions as a very poor imitation of the real thing. And you become awakened to what real love does. The kind of love described in 1 Corinthians 13. And as a result, you, you've got to let go of some things. You let go of your pride. You let go of your need to always have the last word, of your need to be right all the time. You set aside your agenda. It's amazing to me. I have to continue relearning this, just like I did that first Christmas. When I am most concerned with getting what I want out of the relationship with my wife, you know, like I, I need more freedom, and so I'm like always negotiating to spend more nights away from the house uh, per week or something. I need some me time, right? 
When I make that my main concern, it creates so much strain in our relationship and constant debate and insecurity in my wife, and understandably so. But when I just make it my primary concern to to tend to Holly's needs and fulfill her and serve her and make her feel secure in my love, then there is so much freedom that results and joy and fulfillment for me. And and it's not just, oh, now I figured out how to manipulate her in order to get what I want out of the relationship. No, it's just not even about that. It's about doing what love does. And that's enough. If you want a love that lasts, these things have to be learned and, and practiced. They're forged at this stage. This is where I learned the lifeblood of marriage, repentance and forgiveness. This is where I remember to forget where I learn to apologize. This is the place where we learn to keep short accounts with each other. We don't let that account just get full of grievances and then store it all up and sometime unload it on our partner. We learn what it means to not let the sun go down on your anger. It may be that we need a counselor or a mentor couple to help us learn these things at this stage, to help us get to the place where we are awakened to the things that don't work. And we commit ourselves to do the work necessary in order to have a love that lasts. And in that way, we will reach stage five, love. Real love. You know, we said we loved each other way back here. But we really had no idea what it would actually mean to love each other for keeps. Now love is more than words. It's something that that we do. The the love so poetically described in weddings is now playing out in the nitty-gritty of life. Protecting, trusting, hoping, persevering, just like God's love does. You know, it's interesting, as you look back over this, uh, this is the critical point. The critical corner of maturity. All of us are going to arrive here. In, in every relationship, we're, we're, we're going to get to the end of our rope. And unfortunately, it seems we have fewer and fewer examples of relationships that have turned this corner. Everybody says they want this, but few people are willing to follow the path that leads there. This is the place where Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13 really have to sink in. You know, here they can be sloughed off. Here, they just patronize you. But here, they're going to have to take root if we're going to hold on to love. I mean, this is the place where we have to decide what's love got to do with it. And this is the place where we need to remember that when it comes to you, God decided that love has everything to do with it. His love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on you. That's what he showed us on the cross. Jesus went through hell to prove that he would always hold on to you. You're going to have to decide if you're going to hold on to love. If you're willing to learn to love. If you're willing to, even without all the answers, walk into your future instead of giving up. And this is the place where you need to know that love is the only thing worth holding on to anyway. Love never fails. It never comes to an end. But everything else 
does. You know, we don't often read past this point uh, at weddings, but after the person closes the Bible and goes back and sits down so they can get on with the rest of the ceremony, Paul goes on to describe that everything else that the Corinthians think is so important and matters so much doesn't matter anything. Everything else will come to an end. Prophecies, these divine utterances, they will come to the end of their rope. Speaking in tongues, these fantastic displays of spirituality, that will come to the end of its rope. Knowledge and understanding, all of that will come to the end of its rope. Everything that you think is so important, that you think has everything to do with everything, it will all come to an end. Everything you think is so important in a relationship, your reputation, it will come to the end of its rope. Your status, it won't matter for long. It will come to the end of its rope. All of the stuff that you hold on to in your relationships, that you try to achieve, your upper hand, your way, your opinions, it will all come to the end of its rope. And so when we arrive at the end of our rope in a relationship, we reach for the one thing that never runs out. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. We hold on to Him. We don't hold on to some kind of optimism that the world's going to get better. Don't just blindly hope that somehow things will work out okay. We don't try to soothe ourselves with the belief in the goodness of humanity or with the belief that there's goodness somewhere downside, inside of this person who's driving us crazy. We believe in the goodness of God. And we hold on to His unfailing love when our love fails. When we come to the end of our rope, that's all we can do. So, speaking practically one more time, let's all of us just admit that our love fails. As a friend, as a daughter, or a son, a brother, or a sister, as a parent, or as a spouse, we we have not loved in the way that we're called to love or the way that we have vowed to love. And some of us have gotten divorced or we've given up on a relationship in other ways. And if that's you, then, then you just need to know, first of all, that God's love has not given up on you. And no matter how you have failed to love in the past, you can decide if you will do the love described in 1 Corinthians 13 from this point forward. Others of us are in marriages that are hanging by a thread. And as far as you can tell, divorce is your only option. But may you call to mind the vows that you made and ask God how you can be more faithful in fulfilling them. In spite of the brokenness, I know it's broken, and the pain, I don't doubt that it's painful. It may mean that you need to draw some new boundaries in your relationship, whether financially or, or with how time is spent or, or with living arrangements even for a time. If you're in danger in a relationship, then you need to draw some very firm boundaries and seek refuge and counsel. You may need counseling regardless. You may need to quit, just quit being so selfish. I don't know what it is exactly, but, but I pray that God's, God's goodness to you, His steadfast love for you, His patience 
with you would at least cause you to think more creatively about your next step than just assuming that divorce is your only option. And similarly, in our strained relationships with parents and, and kids and friends, you know, holding on to love may mean that we need to draw new boundaries in that relationship or we need to just offer forgiveness with no expectation that it's going to be received. And then patiently wait until some kind of awakening will change the trajectory of the relationship. That's what love does. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. Let's pray together. God, we give thanks to you for you are good. Your love endures forever. We gather as people who have failed in our ability to love. We say we love people, but we understand that we don't always show that love in the way that we've been loved. And so have mercy on us, God. Uh, Forgive us. Show kindness to us even where we've not shown kindness to others. Help us to love in the ways that you have loved us. (laughs) Thank you that your love for us never fails. Hear our voices as we proclaim that together. It's in your name we pray. Amen.